Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Ira Brenner is a psychiatrist in Pennsylvania. He has done a tremendous amount of work on psychological trauma and stress and has also focused on how the effects of that trauma can sometimes be passed on to the children of the traumatized people. Dr. Brenner, thank you so much for joining us and speaking to us about this topic. You're very welcome. Good morning. Good morning. It's a very complex topic, and it's very big, but let's start to try to define it a little bit. The issue of trauma encompasses many domains in a person's life. One aspect of it, from a psychological point of view and a psychiatric point of view, is how to reduce its long-term effects. What do we know about how one's trauma can affect their children? Can the trauma be transmitted, so to speak, from one generation down to the next generation? The question, to be more specific, is whether or not severe trauma can be passed along from parent to child, even if the child was not directly affected and born after the specific events. And I would say clearly that the answer is yes. Do we know how much of this is biological versus psychological in its mechanism? I think that remains one of the big areas of research and controversy today. When these phenomena were first recognized, it was thought to be primarily psychological and associated with the massive psychological traumas, specifically unresolved mourning and grief that the parents could not process as a result of massive trauma. And this originally was discovered in children of Holocaust survivors. So it was originally thought to be primarily psychological. With more refined biological research, there is some growing evidence of epigenetic transmission. Rachel Yehuda's work specifically addresses the point, the idea that there might be methylation of DNA groups associated with genes controlling stress response and cortisol response have been identified. Problem, however, according to those people who have studied this research in detail, is that the sample size is thought to be too limited and only one generation has been studied. So I think the jury is still out. I think primarily it's thought to be psychological psychodynamic, but also with regard to early, early mother-child attachment-related transmission, the psychological versus the biological sort of breakdown. We're in that realm of somatosensory and pre-psychological. So the question of whether or not fear and trauma gets transmitted through direct attachment behavior and attachment phenomena is another very important area. And we know that children with disorganized, disoriented attachments, this is associated with transmission of the mother's fear. And it's also correlated in later life with dissociative disorders. So this is another promising area of which researchers are looking into. It brings straight to the table so many questions about how we as a mental health community need to properly diagnose people when they come to us with anxiety disorders and phobias and and, and depressions and the like. Does the mental health community sufficiently ask about this type of history? I think that is an excellent question and is very much to the point and the importance of this podcast because 
I would contend that intergenerational transmission of trauma is probably one of the most, if not most, overlooked and unappreciated aspects of a legacy of trauma. Unless a mental health professional is aware of its phenomenon and thinks about it and considers it in his or her differential diagnosis and in the kinds of questions that are asked in the initial evaluation, it will never be recognized. Typically, mental health professionals do not ask specific questions about the parent's history of trauma. And without that information, one cannot even begin to consider this phenomenon. So it gets overlooked a lot. When someone asks those questions, they open up a big door. And a lot of mental health people, this may be a little bit too um, too narrow of a comment, but I'll try it. They don't want to get that involved at this level. They don't want to get that involved at the deep psychodynamic issues. And I think that's an issue that our profession needs to deal with. Your thoughts on that, if, if my comment even makes sense. Unfortunately, your comment makes too much sense to me, because I think as we live and work in this era of managed care, limited uh, health care benefits, more and more of an emphasis on short-term treatments, symptom-focused management, we lose sight of the patient. The whole notion of, in medicine, the doctor-patient relationship has become anachronistic, unfortunately. This carries over into the mental health field where so many therapists, because of the nature of the training and the pressures today, are focused more on techniques and manualized approaches to the patient, ignoring the human being on both sides. One of the things that uh, came through very early on in my study of uh, intergenerational transmission of trauma was to hear very senior clinicians say it really matters who the therapist is. It's important, it's essential to have a therapeutic alliance and to convey empathy and interest in the patient. And that includes all aspects of the patient. And you're right, that requires getting involved. That requires dealing with a human being. And I think that's one of the appeals of a biological model, because if there's a biological model, there's hope that there's a biological treatment. And we know that when it comes to treating even uncomplicated trauma, whatever uncomplicated trauma might be, we're looking for the specific treatment of choice. And it's very hard to come up with this, and I don't think there's unanimity of agreement. In the end, it requires listening to the patient, being present, bearing witness to what the patient has experienced, and allowing the patient to be free to feel and mourn. The importance of mourning cannot be stressed enough when we're dealing with trauma. And so when you spoke a few minutes ago about the folks who were in the Holocaust, many of them came out of the camps and did not complete their mourning, I guess would maybe would be the right term, and they passed that headset, that gestalt onto their children. And I've seen children, second generation of Holocaust survivors, and they do struggle with this a great deal. Is there a different, and I know I'm playing with semantics, is there a different trauma, per se, between a political thing such as the Holocaust and the response of a natural thing, such as a nasty hurricane or tornado that kills a lot of people, or, for example, the shooting in Parkland a couple months ago. Do we, should we differentiate them, or perhaps it's a moot point, perhaps it's all the same? Your comments again, please. Well, again, from my psychodynamic perspective, I recognize that each type of trauma, whether it's a large group social trauma, 
shooting, a bombing, a, a genocide, a persecution, ethnic cleansing. Each kind of trauma has its own particular fingerprint. There's a particular aspect to it. And I think if one is going to work effectively with a survivor of such a trauma, one needs to have some of the history. One needs to know some of the facts. One needs to know about September 11th. One needs to know about some of the specifics of the Parkland shooting. One needs to know about uh, some of the details of the Pulse nightclub shooting or whatever it is. I think that, and Freud had said this a long time ago, that the trauma that is visited upon another human being by a human being, relational trauma, terrorism, individual physical and sexual abuse, this kind of trauma seems to have the deepest impact as opposed to, quote, an act of God, unquote. Nevertheless, we see phenomenal reverberations from natural disasters. And once again, when there are large groups of people involved in a trauma, whether it's an earthquake, whether it's a shooting, whether it's a bombing, it's possible that there can be some comfort in the group, some validation, some consensual validation, some reality testing. And this is very different from what uh, Leonard Schengel described as the private holocaust in the horrors of physical and sexual abuse in one's family, where so often there is what we call gaslighting, where there's no affirmation or validation at all. The isolation, the loneliness, the divide-and-conquer mentality leaves survivors of this kind of trauma utterly, utterly isolated. And I think this presents a different kind of challenge to the therapist, so that if we want to believe one size fits all, we may help some of the people some of the time, but I think we're going to miss a lot of opportunities to be effective. And unfortunately, that requires training and effort on the part of the therapists. After the Parkland shooting, there were a number of groups volunteering to do post-trauma interventions. And I certainly have to thank many of them. I'm sure many of them were quite good and, and timely. But there was a sense that everybody was doing it. And what you just spoke about, having a little bit greater sense of studying it and knowing some of the history of it is so critical. I think there's a knee-jerk response to go out and help people, but maybe even not everybody needs psychotherapy. Maybe we need to be careful that we don't turn it into a pathology necessarily so quickly. And I saw a lot of that after Parkland. It made me uncomfortable. And of course, I did not know every case and every situation, of course, but I just got the sense that therapists were going in and they were turning this into a pathology when these people just needed, like you said, a group, someone to hold, someone to cry with, someone to touch. I imagine that's equally frustrating for you. It is really a challenge having done volunteer work myself at the Family Center and at Ground Zero after September 11th and recognizing the enormous challenges facing those volunteers and certainly those survivors, the need for flexibility, the need for human contact, the need for service animals to show some sort of compassion, some contact was essentially the most important thing in, in many cases. I think to rush to diagnose definitely does a disservice. On the other hand, an equal disservice is done when there's pressure by group, by the media, by other kinds of agencies 
for communities who, quote, put it behind them, get over it, get on with things, mourn after 48 hours, and get with the process of rebuilding. I think that does a different kind of disservice. I don't think that one can rush these things. I think that the kind of numbness and shock that people experience associated with peritraumatic symptoms, associated with a totally unexpected assault on one's life where lives have been taken, the kind of shock that people typically enter into can give the impression to a casual observer that that person is holding up and doing well, even to the survivor themselves. And it's not until days, weeks, or even months later, in some cases years later, when it becomes recognized that the person is walking around in a trance and has not even come close to digesting, processing, or metabolizing the trauma. So there are so many individual responses. And I think to simply look at rates of PTSD and change our criteria periodically does not really address the problem, in my view. What about the people who are the first responders, military folks? One would think that in their training, they know they're going into war zones. They know they're going to see horrible things or be shot at and and the like. And yet we see such a high level of PTSD in military folks. Two questions. Number one, can military training somehow mitigate that? And number two, does that also get passed on across generations? Again, I think you're asking a a multi-pronged Yes, I know. (laughs) But, But certainly we have become aware of the importance of resilience, and resilience training and various programs have come into being in the last 20 years or so. And the recognition of mental preparation, the recognition of group solidarity, the recognition of optimism, the recognition of anticipation and problem solving, these kinds of cognitive mental sets, practicing, these are all very, very important techniques that underlie many of the resilience training programs. And I think there is great value. I think that for highly, highly trained people with certain kinds of psychological profiles, the possibility of being extremely resilient and learning about it and becoming more resilient is a definite possibility. The problem, however, when a first responder or anyone else reaches a saturation point, because everyone has a breaking point, when people have exceeded their saturation point, And they're so used to keeping a stiff upper lip, keeping it all inside, not showing any impact of it, not allowing oneself to know just how much pain they are in. People who are not used to expressing themselves can implode. And I think this is a problem so that those mental health people who do work with first responders have to have a pre-existing relationship with them. There has to be trust before something like this happens. Otherwise, it becomes almost impossible to effectively deal with first responders who have reached that saturation point. This is certainly something that I witnessed after September 11th. Can it be passed along? I think there can be intergenerational transmission of trauma and intergenerational transmission of resilience also.
as you were saying that, and you used the word saturation, what came to my mind was that a first responder who has reached that saturation point now comes home to his family, and that saturation effectively changes the dynamics of the family. And the kids pick it up, and they have Absolutely. The, the, the children are tuning forks. The children resonate. And loving children don't like to see and cannot tolerate their parents being in pain and try to heal them. And because they are not developmentally, cognitively, neurologically mature, they can suffer also as a result of their loving efforts to heal their parents. This is a phenomenon in intergenerational transmission. And if they try to heal their parents and they can't because either they're too young or it's too complicated for a child to do, they could probably feel very frustrated and saddened about that as well. This has many, many roots to it. Absolutely. And because intergenerational transmission of trauma is not a, quote, diagnostic category in DSM-3, 4, or 5, in none of the DSMs, and because... It typically does not reach a level of a syndrome, which has its own stigma and problems. People don't know how to think about it. They don't know how to conceptualize it. They don't know how to incorporate it into their assessment of the patient and their approach to the patient. So it can get overlooked. And it's a sad thing when it's overlooked because it... Very often, and of course I'm now repeating, and it very often misses one of the core triggers that any good mental health person really needs to have an understanding of. Ira Brenner is a psychiatrist in Pennsylvania. It's been very interesting to talk to him about the effect of trauma as it goes across generations. If someone is feeling this or knows someone who has this type of problem, try to do an intervention, and maybe you'll have to see a couple doctors until you can find one who can spend the time to do these other explorations. Dr. Brenner, thank you so much. This has been fascinating, and I hope we can help prevent a lot of intergenerational transmission of trauma. It's an incredible and necessary concept. Thank you so much, sir. My pleasure. Thank you.